one of the things that amazes me is that these actors, and I have 30 something actors on this podcast now that have all said yes to doing this. And every single one of them has not only said yes to donating their time, has said yes to participating, but has said yes to the guts of the podcast. That in the meat of the emotion, they show up. Every single one of them, no matter what they have going on. I had an actor who who has a father who's terribly ill. I have an actor who has been in this situation. You know, I have an actor who is triggered by what we're talking about. And every single one of them is standing on this podcast, quote unquote, stage and giving their heart and guts to that. And you can't help but create art when that happens. The voice you just heard belongs to Kate Ruffner. Hi, I'm Kate Ruffner, and I am a creative director, founder, and writer of the Reclaimers podcast. I'm also the public face for the Empowering Tools Coalition, which is a collection of psychologists and therapists who are dedicated to resolving issues of coercive control, manipulation, gaslighting, and intimate partner violence. Um, I have a background in advocacy, so that's uh, where I got uh, the start in all of this. And then I also have just years of experience. I love um, taking apart a good DSM, a diagnostic and statistics manual, um, and reading abstracts about psychology. So with a degree in communication, I, I read all of that and then how to tell the story from there. So, Who met with me over Zoom to dig deep into the fictional futuristic universe of Empathy Tools podcast, The Reclaimers. I'm your host, Liz Christensen, and it's all in the telling. Welcome to episode 66 with Kate Ruffner of the Reclaimers podcast. So the Reclaimers podcast is my attempt at edutainment. Um, it's a, a group of therapists who said, you know, I really wish that I could send every person just out of an intimate partner violence situation to therapy. And because uh, they can't do that, they don't have the resources to do that for every person. And many of those people have been, um, many victims have been financially abused. So they don't walk away with a lot of resources right away. So this is meant to bridge the gap between um, just starting out of that abusive relationship and into a life that they can claim their own. The, it's a little bit of an odd attempt uh, because we set it in the future. Um, so there's a little bit of sci-fi there. But the reason we set it in the future is so we could idealize many elements. For example, the justice system allows us to prosecute emotional abuse instead of that being a question. Um, and coercive control, which isn't often obvious on the outside, that also can be prosecuted. So in the future, the justice system of the future, we imagine this beautiful world where those things can be prosecuted and then victims can get help. So. And do you do that just to expedite in a storytelling fashion that like, there's no question about what's happened. We're just dealing with what's <laughs> happened. And we're all on the same page about definitions and morality. Right, right. And I, I appreciate you asking that because yes, that is the main point is that, listen, the abuse happened. We don't have to justify that because so many victims come out of course of control and say, well, I wasn't abused. That's like the number one thing that you hear as an advocate from someone coming from an intimate partner violence situation is, well, I wasn't abused. And then what we're finding is the basis for that is something that everyone knows. When I say this term, everybody's be like, oh, that, okay. When I say the term Stockholm syndrome, 
everyone's like, okay, right. Okay. So that's what we're doing is we're conditioning someone to believe that their abuser is a really good person or something like that. And there are patterns in emotional abuse, coercive control, manipulation, gaslighting that all abusers engage in. And within that engagement, um, someone is conditioned to believe that they're not being abused. So one of the hardest things instantly is to get someone to identify that that is an abuser, that's very dangerous for you, and we need to get you away from them. And then to lessen instances where they feel an addictive impulse to go back. Is that why you're pairing edu with tainment? Big time. The empowering tools, there's 10 of them, and all of them have to do with um, what to do to heal. You know, we read all the books about why predators abuse, why, why certain people do certain things, but also why we, we feel these things. But then there's this whole thing of what do you actually do in the healing? You know, like when you're in the, in the midst of healing, how do you actually make that happen? So um, demonstrating the tools and showing someone else confidently walk through that process with a guided, compassionate, empathetic, thoughtful hand to their side, you know, like you, you have these characters who represent advocates on the podcast that are um, meant to be guides. And so that guiding hand helps people feel reassured. Um, whereas just dryly explaining the tool and saying, well, here's the tool and the tool is meant to sort of help you do this. You know, that's a real dry interpretation of it. The um, actual attainment side of that, you know, the, the entertaining side of it sort of lessens the resistance. It gets people to say, okay, I'm just going to listen to Rose's story. Or I'm just going to listen to so-and-so's story and feel a lot better about um, what they're doing. And then later they could be like, oh, wait, I might have some elements of Rose in my experience. What did Rose do? You know, so that's, that's lessening that resistance to start. I have a couple questions about that on like a craft level. Sure. If the goal is to teach and to help them feel good, but stories in our Western culture are predicated on conflict. Yes. <laughs> How yes. Are crafting a story that, that meets all these needs. There's a couple of different things that we decided as a coalition going in and that I have used as foundation for the writing of everything. And that is there's at least a partial, partial resolution to every episode. We go from episode to episode, particularly in, in season two, where there are conflicts that are underlying throughout. That's a necessity of episodic things. You have to do that. The conflict is actually comforting because when someone can speak their story and say, this is the conflict that I experienced, this is the shame I experienced as a result of this conflict, and they can speak that out loud and someone else says, I understand and I'm sorry that happened to you, there is comfort there. So raising the conflict during the episode, having a, a model guide, a fantasy replacement of an actual voice in their life saying, I'm sorry that happened to you, that can resolve so much. So it's not the actual conflict that causes the problem. It's leaving the conflict unresolved for long spaces of time. How would you describe the major dramatic question of <laughs> the reclaimers? There's three things that we set aside as our mission statement. One, what if empaths ruled the world? What would it look like if empaths were in charge of everything, you know? Um, and to do that, we gave them a superpower. The second thing was, what if the justice system actually was attuned to victims instead of predators? Instead of focusing on predators, learning their names, being fascinated with them, watching many murder shows. Don't get me wrong, I love my murder shows. Um, you know, I'm, I'm there with that. Uh, true crime, you know, I'm sure everyone can say at some point they've listened to a true crime or watch it or listen to it, you know? 
but really that we're focusing on victims, that support is there for victims and survivors, that that is the focus instead of the justice system being about, well, we're going to catch all the predators and prevent this from happening again. Um, and then the third big question is, how do you get someone out of this? And how do you keep them away from abusers? How do you begin to make sure that when they're hostage to their own brain because of their conditioning, that they can walk forward with their own life and say, I'm not going to be hostage to that anymore. How do you talk them into or persuade them into doing things after they have been so manipulated? So that's the big underlying question always throughout all the seasons. Um, you have a, a good background in storytelling and theater, actress, <laughs> director, writer, yeah. all this other stuff too. <laughs> How are you crafting an individual episode when everything that we're trained in writing, directing, acting is like the moment now mm -hmm. and the framework you're dealing with with this particular story is typically like talking about or post-processing something that happened prior. I think one of the key things in any of the session episodes, and these are the episodes between the advocate and the survivor, in those episodes, we raise the conflict from the survivor. So we're showing that the conflict is theirs and then we're showing that they are the architect of the cure to that. Um, the advocate is meant to sweep in front of them. Um, I often reference uh, hockey and curling. In hockey, you're going to bully the puck around and tell it where to go. In curling, you're going to sweep in front and hope that the puck goes where you want it to go. And that's like advocacy. You're sweeping in front of a puck and just hoping that it has the momentum and the direction to get where you want it to go. So we demonstrate these advocates doing that. There is natural conflict in that push-pull between um, survivors and advocates as survivors fight to figure out how to wrest control of this for themselves. So that's one thing. In our other narratives throughout season two, we have these two different types of episodes that we've thrown in around the session episodes. One is a little mini episode where we go to the past. So we actually have demonstrations of what coercive control looks like. And we took it out of a romantic partner scenario so that we didn't have to have any of the um, triggering intimate partner things that might be difficult for many of our listeners. We put it between a professor and a student so that it was a demonstrable thing that we could show. And then we also... <laughs> we used a psychology professor who's actually teaching the student about coercive control. So there's a lot of meta going on there. Um, but in that teaching, there's a lot of demonstration for people to go, wait, why isn't she like noticing that he's doing this? And then that way that, that recognition from a narrative standpoint can be both helpful to the person listening as well as helpful to people who are out of it already and people who are in it. So the person listening can, can stand on either of those precipices and get help um, from both of those standpoints. So using that, it's, it's a convention. And I've, you know, I had a good friend say, so you're going to assume that the audience is okay with you using one of the oldest conventions, which is, you know, time travel. And I was like, well, hopefully, you know, like hopefully this, this lands, you know, you got to try, you got to see what happens with it. So there's that. And then we also have a news reporting show, yet another common convention where someone who is already out can be sort of um, relaying what it felt like to be in. So that's sort of a, a past processing, as you mentioned, with a present-based concern because she's, she's talking about that information in order to persuade an audience to take action on a current problem. Who is part of the creative 
team and process of what you're creating? There are three arms. We have the Empowering Tools Coalition. This is an anonymous group of people, and that's because many of them run shelters in places where shelters are illegal. Some of them are actually running. I want to stop you. Shelters are illegal in some places? In some countries throughout the world, shelters are illegal. And in some places here in America, certain types of shelters. Shelters where you would be sheltering your children from a clearly malignant, abusive person, despite the fact that the court has ordered custody. And that can be a very difficult thing to walk because many judges don't recognize what predatory red flags look like in emotionally um, abusive situations. So some shelters have to operate outside the law in order to make that happen. And some of um, the people that I are on the Empowering Tools Coalition, um, I'm not going to say that they're breaking the law because they're not. We're just maintaining standards of anonymity that protect them from having to reveal what it is they do. Um, And then I have several people who operate in other countries running trafficking busts for people. um, And I say people, not just children. Lots of people think that trafficking is is children. It's people. And so they're running trafficking busts to free people from those things. So their anonymity would be compromised, but they wanted to participate in creating this to help the people that they are actually engaging with. So that arm develops a lot of our our technical know-how, you know, our our psychology-based things, we pull, they pull abstracts and research. I mentioned at the beginning, I love abstracts and research. So this is one of my favorite things to do is just sort of argue points with them about, well, what does the research say? How should we present this? I, I am the sole writer. Like I'm the one that sits down with the script and hashes it out and figures it out. But I feel like that's such a weird way to say that because I'm not the person who actually determined the skeleton that the script came into being. Would you the say wordsmithing and someone else is building the framework? I would say that the framework is a team effort between that com- empowering tools coalition. And then I have a fiction-based side of the writing team. And that is um, a group of people who are actually some of the actors. Justin Lee, Thad Weiland, Shelby Farron, Emily Dickerson has been like the biggest contributor to the story of the first season and to all of the platforms and foundations of things. She is like the Queen Latifah a lot of the time, you know, um, from Stranger Than Fiction. Like she'll come in and be like, like I'll be, you know, smoking and standing on the side of the building. Like, I don't know how to resolve this. I don't know how to resolve this. And she'll come in and be like, calm down. Let's take a deep breath. What are we going to do with this? Um, And then we have Becky Wright, Becky Two Wright. Um, She is editor extraordinaire and comes in um, with a lot of what season two, the complexity of season two, and, and has really corrected a lot of those things. And then What's really tricky is you have these two arms of things, and Ryan Bruckman also serves on that team, but then in post-production stuff, Ryan Bruckman is adding things to the story that I couldn't have imagined because audio engineering requires a certain finesse to tell that story. So there's these many moving parts, and I, I feel like the hub of the many spokes, I'm getting all the information. So I, I don't know if it's yes, wordsmithing, and really just observing a lot of the time being like, wow, that's a really great idea. Thank you for, yes, let's bring that to the table. Let's look at this. Let's pull all this together. So, yeah. Some of the audio engineering that that Ryan is doing, it sounds like to me, <laughs> I haven't actually watched or like, you know, asked mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. but um, it sounds like it's going beyond just basic cleaning the audio for podcast. I'm mm-hmm. hearing some Foley. I'm hearing... Mm-hmm. What, what is he doing in post-production? So he's Foley and Worldscaping. And those are the two biggest things. If, if we're going to set something in the future, things are going to sound slightly different. And we set it, we, I say me and the Empowering Tools Coalition, we set it in this 
undetermined amount of time because we're not quite sure what we wanted the timeline to be. But it's far enough in the future that things are different enough, the technology will sound different, far enough in the future that many of like our current climate issues could be resolved so that that wasn't on the table, and far enough in the future that we could imagine this superpower coming into being as an evolutionary thing with humans, you know, that empathy as a superpower could be this this uh, possibility on the horizon, you know? So when he's putting together things like that, he's taking a, a, a sound that we're familiar with and tweaking it. For example, there's papers. We might have papers. I imagine that those are um, fa- uh, fake, uh, what's that called? When something's fake. Synthetic. Words that, yeah, synthetic. That they're completely synthetic, right? And I imagine that there was a stone process for humans at some point, but but we moved away from wood, that that wasn't something that you would have in the future. So Ryan, considering that paper that you're using in that moment, it has to have so slightly different sound, but be familiar enough that you're comforted by it. And that's the other thing that's really cool too. He's using ASMR and a lot of really comforting nature sounds that when we're in session, he's not using anything that's that's brassy or pingy. You know, it's very comforting. It's very low key. And it's it's incredibly lulling um, to try to to help with that. Spell out that acronym for me, ASMR. Oh, golly. ASMR. It's like amb- um, it's happy ambient or like peaceful ambient, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the goal of ASMR is to incite or engage the part of you that gives you the shivers, because there is something that biologically happens to you when you feel the shivers. Autonomous sensory meridian response, and really, it's about using your biology to create sensations that comfort your fight or flight response. And you can find thousands of ASMR um, opportunities on YouTube. If you think about the last time you got a haircut, when the barber or the stylist swept the back of your neck with a brush after they talked very quietly to you and like cut your hair, like all of that relaxing feeling that you have, uh, ASMR is meant to stimulate that and to help you sort of go into this autonomous sensory experience. I really like the word that you use, the, the worldscaping. Yeah, that's Ryan's word. Oh, yeah, I gotta give, yeah. fantastic. On, a, on yeah. a fiction level, what else about this futuristic society have we not touched on? Like, what, what more of the world do you want to kind of tease us with? Oh, my gosh. I love this world. I love creating for this world. So I could talk about this world forever. And I have driven the actors crazy sometimes with, okay, did you know that your character, you know, <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing, this this reform of the justice system, the idea that we could add an amendment to the U.S. Constitution and get a nation unified to do that is such a politically difficult thing to imagine, that creating that in the future and saying this is possible. Unfortunately, in my brain, I was unable to imagine that without putting a really horrific war in front of that. So there is a, a war, an uprising, and it, it becomes a world war. It springs out of the United States that divides some of the United States' pieces, not to divide the United States, but some of the pieces of the culture get divided up. And I think that things do not go back to what we were used to before the war. So with this future-based world, everyone is more attuned to one another, more empathetic and more understanding without saying, uh, sure, you're having a bad day because you're traumatized, big deal. 
I imagine that this is a future where someone could walk out and be like, oh, hey, how was therapy this morning? You've been really working on that sexual abuse you experienced as a child. Like that that would be something that you could just talk about rather than have it be this giant, you know, response of like, I have to be really quiet about that. I can't talk about that. Um, And I think that that came out of that cultural shift from that war. The other thing I really, really love about the future is how quickly everything's able to happen. In one episode, one of the characters mentions that she goes to Boston, just a hop, skip and a jump. And now she's back in DC an hour later. So there's just a lot of fun imagining how technology will resolve a lot of those issues. (laughs) So, yeah. You're in season two now. Mm -hmm. Adding that in, how many years ago did you start this idea? So it was first presented to the Empowering Tools Coalition that was first formed and put together. We originally called uh, ourselves the Recreating You Coalition. And actually, it was a suggestion from Shelby Farron. He said, ooh, recreating is kind of tricky for a lot of people when they think of creation. When they're traumatized, they kind of can't do that. And I was like, oh, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, we need to think about that. So the Empowering Tools was, was what came out of that. Um, That was formed June of 2019. Um, We've been talking about it for a while, you know, how to help this response. So really, we've only been around two years. And we launched the first round of the podcast January 22nd, 2020. And our second season was launched January 22nd, 2021. So here we go. Right in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's been a weird year with pandemic. Crazy. I do want to ask you about that. Sure. did the fact that um, our nation does, and our world decided to um, undergo trauma together <laughs> I mean, did that influence the arc of where you were headed, the kinds of stuff you wanted to prioritize, or the way people were listening to your content? I will say that actually the last election cycle was really the big influencer and motivator. I'm not going to speak to a specific politician, but I will say that there are several politicians that display and demonstrate concerning narcissistic behavior on the world stage. And I'm not going to limit that to the United States either, you know, because I do have such a a global response to things a lot of the time because I have a lot of friends in a lot of different countries as part of this coalition. So one of the tougher things is to see someone display narcissistic tendencies and then have a lot of people go, well, that person is, is completely good for the country. Um, and I'm not referencing America there. Like a lot of people will think that I am referencing America to start. I'm not. That's something that happens a lot of places and over a lot of different time periods is that people have been lulled into a sense of safety or they have been confused because a really good coercive controller takes uh, office. So in the 2016 news cycle, though, the biggest thing that happened was people were capable of dissecting those symptoms for the first time ever on a world stage via social media. And as we were dissecting those things, we weren't doing it using the available information from the DSM. <laughs> this was such a confusing thing to me that people were like, well, this is what I see. So therefore, I'm right. And I thought, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, we, we, we have a problem here that we're not evaluating what's actually happening based on this knowledge that we have available at any given time. Um, let's, let's jump in real quick for any listener who's confused. The DSM sure. is the diagnostic and physician's manual, right? And it is meant, it's, it's a handbook for therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and it's used to not only diagnose people with disorders, personality disorders, mental illness, just a note, there's a difference between personality disorder and mental illness. 
but it's also used to help determine what sorts of medication and what sorts of treatment responses there will be. And depending on age, there's a lot of cross-section pieces in here that someone who displays certain symptoms at a certain age is going to have a different response um, than someone who displays those symptoms at a different age. So there's a lot of different things that can be pulled out of this. And from the DSM, which is a huge undertaking, which is why you don't see a new one every year, you know, we're on DSM five right now. And I can't remember when that one was released, but it, it wasn't recent. There was um, um, just what, uh, 15 to 20 years ago when I was in college, it was the DSM four. Right. So. Right. So this will tell you like how far we've come and it's because so much research goes into it. <clears throat> For those who say, you know, like, I, I don't know where to get my data start with the DSM. And there are a lot of really great, and I, I hate to use this as a reference, but start with Wikipedia and look at the links from Wikipedia to the D DSM. Oftentimes the Wikipedia will explain something linked to the DSM. You can go read it in the DSM and, and, and see, you know, that, that correlation there, how someone would extrapolate that to the Wikipedia. I'm saying this like people are going to do this on their free time, like it's fun for them because <laughs> that's how I operate. But truly, I just have been amazed that with all of the data that we have, that we're not using that. So one of the things that I've been disheartened about is that means that myths are going to perpetuate. Things like all artists are lazy. I have a problem with that. Things like predators only traumatize other people because they were traumatized as children. That's just not true. And we know that. We have the data to back that up. That it's not always trauma that causes someone to react like this. And it, it's unimaginable to me that we are in such an advanced education era and not take advantage of that. So the pandemic to me was a, an expression of all the things in the world that were a collection of bad circumstances that all hit at the right time or the wrong time, if you will. I mean, I don't know how to describe that, that all hit at the same time. Let's use that term. There's the wordsmithing. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so as the this pandemic hit, we knew that we were going to have a malignant narcissist leader in the second season that we would watch and have them demonstrate what that looked like on a national stage. So that was in there. I do think that some of the script writing got more poignant because I was more affected by some things. I'll say that for sure. There are some things that we, as an empowering tools coalition, predicted up front. For example, we released a script between uh, two people, a malignant narcissist and um, another person watching that narcissist. And the narcissist will not be quiet. And so at one point, this other person turns to the narcissist and says, will you just shut up, men? And we wrote that line in and we read that script, even though the script had been released to the actors a week and a half prior, we read that script immediately following the debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And everyone thought, wait a minute, this line is, you know, that this is here. There's just some things that come up, you know, as, as we pay attention to events that I think will just plug themselves in naturally. I Yeah. I'm so interested in this intersection between sure. the science, which is kind of where my shorthand for what we've been talking about. Um, I like the science. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the science presented in a fictional way, I understand mm -hmm. the purpose and the reasoning behind that, but I'm curious if you've ever had 
uh, that bump up against each other in a way that was was not helpful for you in the crafting of this? Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. Uh, in the first season, one of the things that's very tricky is to realistically portray someone who's triggered and then to also provide a resolve in an episode because often triggers will last several days or several weeks. And these episodes are five to 25 minutes about, right? So in the first season, we we ranged from five to 25 minutes. And now in the second season, we have mini-sodes that are five to 10 minutes. And then we have longer episodes that are 35 minutes. We got feedback from our audience that we could go longer. It was fine. It was totally okay to keep them in a distressed conflict for longer, that that would be okay. So we're testing that out. We're going to see what happens this season. Um, so with the longer episodes, it, it is easier to talk through a trigger and sort of walk through it realistically. But in the shorter episodes of the first season, that was really, really difficult to figure out. How do we resolve a trigger in 20 minutes? You know, how do you get someone feeling better about something that deeply affected them? Because triggers are, are so um, out of control. They feel like you can't do anything about them. So to demonstrate how an advocate would do that, it's really tricky. The other one is just the reality. <laughs> Trying to describe how a superpower of empathy would actually look there's data and background, and I pulled heavily from the CIA research, the Stanford Extrasensory Lab. You know, there's there's all of this, this background and research on what it would look like to actually have extrasensory empathy and telepathy and things like that. But we had to create a narrative way to describe that that didn't confuse people. And I think that- That sounds all internal, right? And emotional. Yeah, it's really, you know, we- in the second episode, we have this junior trainee. And so she's talking about how her, like the mechanics of her empathy. That was sort of how we got around that a little bit to sort of externalize it. But yes, because it is so internal and because there's such an internalized response when you're feeling empathy or when you're feeling triggered, to bring those out on a podcast feels, why would you even attempt that, you know? <laughs> but from a science perspective, the thing that I've learned is that instead of just a avoiding any of the science is just to go more towards it. The more I dive into it, the more I find, oh, hey, wait a minute. Okay. Learning that the extrasensory lab does have instances where heightened empathy actually lights up certain parts of the brain helped us figure out that there were narrative pieces that we could plug in because of that, that maybe it was more relaxing for the advocate to experience empathy. So once we did that, it, it felt like the narrative would fall into place from there. So yeah, it is a really tricky line to walk though. <laughs> Are you directing the episodes on a sound and a actor interface level? So because I'm also voicing one of the characters and I am voicing a big character this season, last season there was less direction intended, but as we got into it, I realized that we we needed a director. So I asked Ryan, uh, the sound engineer and worldscaper extraordinaire to step in and he would do some processing work up front with people to figure that out. With our more complex episodes this season, um, I realized that we needed solid direction. So we have three directors. I directed the news episodes. Ryan directed the professor student in the past episodes and Becky Wright directed all of the um, inquiry episodes. Ryan also directed the session episodes that you hear this season. I do have final say over everything. I do listen to it obsessively like six or seven times before it's released. And 
Ryan is very kind about editing requests in that, you know, I'll, I'll notice something and be like, okay, that's fine now. But then two days later, when I listen to it again, I'll be like, no, we got to fix that. And so he's, he's really sweet about that. And I would say that it's, it, that's a joint effort between Ryan and I, because Ryan hears a lot of things before I ever get to it that he'll fix and, and, and make better. If you can estimate for me, uh, how many man hours are going into a 35 minute episode? Oh boy. Okay. So our biggest episode of the season is episode 13 and no episode 15 that had 14 cast members involved at any given time. We recorded for four hours. We rehearsed three times in advance of that. So I would say there's, there's at least easily, we could say there's 60 to 80 hours on a 35 minute episode based on cast doing the actual reading the script rehearsing the script recording and then between the director Ryan and I discussing it Ryan moving forward with editing it and then my listening to it obsessively sending it to the empowering tools coalition and all of them listening to it and then coming back with okay this is finalized and everything's good and that's not to mention the script writing so I would say 60 is a good, safe middle ground for those 35 minutes. Um, cool. But that's a large one. That's a really big one. When you have like these smaller ones where there's like two or three people, I would say that's cut in half just because you don't have that many people recording. So 30 hours for a podcast episode, given like podcasting industry norms, I can't think of a single podcaster who would listen to those numbers and say what you're doing is sustainable on a, <laughs> on a time commitment thing. So how right. are you pulling that off? Well, one of the things that I want to point out is that the cast and crew have been very kind in donating their efforts to start. So we have a lot of planned sponsorships and other revenue streams upcoming. And there are a lot of things that, that are, are, are going to come out of this where I do believe the compensation is on the horizon. But I am so grateful to the actor stepping up and saying, I'm willing to donate my time to start. And the other thing that, you know, Ryan has just been fabulous from the beginning about, you know, taking many, many edits and things like that. Um, you're right. It's not sustainable. It's not something that we plan to run indefinitely. There are five seasons planned. I have a definitive end. We knew where we were going to go with that and the question, how we were going to answer those questions. We wanted them answered in such a way as to continue the conversation but satisfactorily put them to bed um, and to say, this is what we're aiming for. This is the future that we need to look at. So there's a philosophical assumptive there that I'm hoping, you know, that <laughs> people aren't offended by, but it's, you know, our worldview, there it is. So within those five seasons, this is our biggest season. This is 36 episodes in a single season. We won't do that again. Um, all the other seasons will have far fewer episodes, but this part of the season had to be told to get to the others. So we needed that. So yeah. <laughs> On a writing master structure, how are you planning, preparing? So I, when I interview like uh, narrative writers for novels, short stories, things mm -hmm. like that, there's the, the pantsers and the planners <laughs> who are kind of both who are plants, right? Like, right. You're obviously somewhere in a planning category. How planned is it? And, and what are you using to keep track of that organization? Totally. Um, I use three. I have three different things um, and they all feed into each other and they all work together. I'm a tech nerd. I mean, I don't know if that's apparent that I really like research. Um, so I have to have places and ways to um, to put things together. And I'm going to forget the name of this, but it, it's a library system by a German. It's the kettle something. 
that I just use a straight Evernote to clip things, um, research and, and keep that in order. And then when I set aside the time to actually go through the season, what's been decided, I'll, I'll pull all of that out of Evernote and put it in Scrivener. Um, and I love Scrivener. It's a, uh, um, that's where all the scripts are written, but it's also a notebook. It's like carrying around six or seven binders at any given time. So I, I love that I could pull the notes in and put them into a workable outline. And then I can hash out that outline with the writing team. During the first season, when I planned out the fictional side of the writing team, the writing team that does the fiction side, we actually used index cards and post-its and just stuck it on someone's counter in their basement. That was fun. But I took those and put those into a skeleton in Scrivener and plugged that in. From Scrivener, I use Notion to track all the, the actual tasky tasks from things. I think it would be impossible to do something like this without thought in advance. I think the really tricky thing is it's very easy for me to envision an entire season, map it out in my head and totally get that there. And as a communicator and a storyteller, I'm eager to get the story out. And at the same time, Telling someone what I envision for the season without just writing the script and getting it out in the world is really tricky for me. I don't know how to explain that, that I feel like I'm really good at scripting. I feel like I'm horrible at describing it up front. So I've really, really relied on Notion and Evernote to set that aside and, and say, here are the tools that we're going to use. Here's the actual arc of the season. Here are character arcs that happen. So I'm definitely not a pantser in that way. There does come a point, though, where I have to sit down and write the script. And in a way that the actual writing of the script, there's a lot of letting all of the research just talk and having that come out on the page because there are arcs of things that I wouldn't have seen until I was writing. And I think that that's the creative muse. I think many people will identify with that, that sometimes you're just in the middle of it and you think, wait a minute, no, it needs to go this direction, you know, and things go differently than you thought they would. So. I want to end with kind of a safe personal question. Sure. At least I, I assume it will be both of those. Things. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we've kind of talked about this idea of edutainment and like cathartic narrative storytelling that has like a real uh, emotionally impactful purpose. Yeah. Can you give me an example or will you give me an example of, <laughs> um, of a piece of art, narrative preferably? Mm -hmm. um, and fictional mm -hmm. that did that for you. Yes. Oh my goodness. The trouble's going to be narrowing that down. I'm, I'm actually going to take this back super old school. And I think a lot of people will be really surprised at this answer because I can think of so many movies that I, I love and have seen, you know, a million times and tried to take apart the Nolan brothers, interstellar, you know, things like that. I can think of rogue one, which really caught me off guard. I did not expect to love that movie as much as I, I just loved it. And there have been a number of really emotional movies like Inside Out and things like that that have a lot of um, heightened awareness. And I think the first movie that ever really caught me as a catharsis was Back to the Future. <laughs> um, yes, the very first Back to the Future. And I think what caught me with the catharsis was two things. In the first place, every single piece of the movie fit somewhere else. It made me feel like life had meaning, you know, that there, there was a reason things happened um, from a narrative perspective to have that, that comfort of here's a question. And then in the second act, here's the answer. Here's the question. Here's the answer. Here's the question. Here's the answer. All of those things. And then I think the real catharsis for me was when Marty realized that he cared about this thing that he was losing 
I think all of us go to that place where we have things around us. We don't realize that what we have is amazing until we've lost it. So him having that moment just surprised me. And then it stuck with me for a very long time after that there could be a point where I could lose something from someone else making a simple choice or me making a dumb choice or me trying to do something good for the world that that could actually have an impact somewhere. So, yeah. That is a delightfully unexpected, profound answer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Kate Ruffner. Kate, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. I really enjoyed talking with you about the Reclaimers. Thanks, Liz. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. This is so great. Keep in the telling commercial free and get exclusive access to full interviews on Patreon. You can help more people find in the telling by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Find out more at lizzylizzyliz.com. Theme music by Gordon Vitas. In the Telling is hosted and produced by me, Liz Christensen. Thank you so much for listening.